If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's Art Dirt. This is the Glass Tire podcast where we talk about topical art topics. I'm William Saradet. And I'm Brandon Zek. And today, Brandon and I are talking about a few recent instances of public protests around oil divestment in the arts and what that looks like at the museum level. Um, some of these protests are taking place in Europe. And, of course, they have a different uh, relationship between funding and public space in the museums than we do in the U.S. So we thought it would be um, a nice topic to touch on today. Well, and part of it also is that we are going to make this conversation local a little bit because... We are in Texas, which, in in case you haven't realized, or maybe if you don't live here and you're listening to this, Texas is the oil, the energy capital of America, maybe? I think I could feel okay saying that. Um, the amount of the economy in Texas that is powered by oil and natural gas and just energy in general is, it, it, it's immense. And it's a huge part of the economy of a huge state. Um so it's it's really relevant for us in different ways around this conversation. We'll get into that. But uh, William, do you want to ground kind of why we're talking about this now? Uh, what happened in the last two weeks that brought this topic to the forefront of the art world's mind? Yeah, so just to set the stage for the listeners, there's a coalition of working groups in the UK that go by the name of Just Stop Oil. And they've been conducting sit-in demonstrations at museums in London, Glasgow, and Manchester, demanding that the UK government halt all future licensing and consents for the exploration, development, and production of fossil fuels in the UK. And that's a direct quote from their website. Also relevant to this discussion is the Liberate Tate campaign, um, which by comparison, was an art collective that sought to, quote, free art from oil, unquote, and was successful in their campaign to get the Tate Modern in London to end its corporate sponsorship with British Petroleum. Though the art collective was based in the UK, they did tour four US cities in 2016, including Houston. Um, That's at least one entry point into this discussion where what's happening now can kind of be tied to the setting and condition of the energy economy and the art world in Texas, at least. Yeah. So starting with Just Stop Oil, the protesters who in the last two weeks have been really active, uh, we're going to talk about what they've done in museums, although they've they've done a lot outside of museums also. They um, have glued themselves and zip-tied themselves to football soccer goals. 
um, in the UK. They have uh, gone and laid on the track of like an indie car race, which is a amazingly dangerous there these are people a lot of them are young people um who are basically doing anything they can to get publicity around the fact that they feel that they're not going to grow up in a world uh that will be safe or that will have resources because of everything that has happened with the climate and how the climate has been destroyed a lot by oil companies um what we're talking about specifically is in the last two weeks, they uh, protesters from Just Stop Oil have super glued their hands to the frames of paintings in, I think it's like five different uh, galleries in the UK. They've done it at London's Royal Academy, at London's National Gallery, at London's Courtauld Gallery, um, at Manchester Art Gallery, and they, they've done this they've super glued themselves to paintings or to the frames of paintings i think that's an important distinction they haven't destroyed the paintings purposefully or anything like that but it's been paintings a lot of them depict you know idyllic landscapes in some way shape or form and them choosing those paintings as a pointed political gesture to be like our world doesn't look like this anymore these resources are depleting and it's paintings by people who have big names also like uh, there's a full-size replica of The Last Supper that they glued themselves to, uh, a painting by John Constable, a painting by Van Gogh, uh, J.M.W. Turner. So this group is really interesting. They are really using everything that they can find as vehicles for their message. It's not a protest against necessarily the things that they are utilizing, but they're utilizing things as vehicles that will get them press. William, is that a fair assessment of this so far? Yeah, I I believe so. Um, There's a chance that the listener may have seen some of these pictures because they've been so active, like you mentioned, Brandon, and because they have um, attached themselves to some pretty famous paintings, like as we mentioned, The Last Supper in London's Royal Academy um, and John Constable's The Hay Wayne at London's National Gallery. Of Vincent Van Gogh as well, so they're they're utilizing some uh, tried and true um, viral is the word that comes to mind. I don't know if it's the most applicable in in the world of uh, protest strategies, but um, they're they're literally they're figuratively chaining themselves to the tree. Uh, they can't be moved. You got to come pick them up, arrest them, and haul them away if you want to get them to to leave. What do you think about their method here? Is it effective for the message? Like they've gotten press, which in theory would say so. Yeah, that is kind of like, I guess when I first saw the pictures, that was the question my mind was trying to answer first was like, did, did they succeed? Are they doing a good job at their, at their protesting? Um, And so I guess I should just preface by saying in no ways am I condoning or abhorring any particular political action, nor am I advocating that anyone destroy property um, as a result of listening to us give our our takes on this this topic. Uh, However, I think that the idea of chemically adhering yourself to a priceless, uh, a priceless artwork, um, I don't know, that sounds that sounds like a great way to um, direct authority at your direction. Um, 
So in that way, I think it's like a foolproof tactic. I guess as another component of this discussion, Brandon, the question to answer is like, are they pressuring the right people to get the right dollar amount of oil money divested from the government? One of the reasons that they did this in museums is there was a quote where one of the members said, it's time to bring these institutions of our culture on board in regards to the truth telling of these times. Basically saying that these larger institutions, you know, possibly government institutions should get on board and help pressure the government to uh, help preserve the planet and preserve the environment. Um, There's an interesting conversation or almost a dissidence in my mind of expectations. Like there are, there are environmental groups that exist. There are groups uh, like this group, which is doing this work. What responsibilities do our larger cultural institutions have in taking in taking political stances, even if those stances, you know, even if they're backed by science, even if they're nearly infallible, like what is the social responsibility of these institutions? Because I bet the charter of this institution says that it's there to exist, to educate the public about art and preserve art and culture, right? Like, how far does it does the institution are they obligated to go in something like this? Yeah, I mean that's a good point, Brandon. In discussing this, you were quick to clarify that although it might be easy to think of just stop oil and liberate Tate as being like the same thing, they actually have different goals in the sense that just stop oil's mission is kind of. They're, they're targeting museums in this particular campaign, but their mandate is kind of decoupled from what the museum's relationship to oil is, whereas Liberate Tate specifically was a petition to pressure the Tate Modern to renounce its corporate sponsorship by British Petroleum. So Liberate Tate's mission is both more specific and more tangibly connected at the place that they're that they're protesting and uh, addressing with their with their bodies with their words. Just stop oil. While I don't mean this as a criticism that it's like not working, I just mean that like it has successfully produced images. That's for sure, um, and it has like sparked in my mind the idea of super gluing myself to things. Um, but I don't know that the relationship between like the host institution, the museums, and like oil and gas extraction projects, I, I don't know that those things are connected um, exactly. One of the differences between museums in London and our institutions here in the US, it seems to me at least, is people feel a larger ownership of institutions in London. And it could be in part because those institutions are more publicly funded or it is it, there is this larger governmental support through taxes and, thing, and grants and things like that. Um, of course, we have that here too through the National Endowment for the Arts, through things like in Houston, the Houston Arts Alliance, through the Texas Commission on the Arts. 
but proportionally, I feel that in the U.S., that public funding is much smaller. And even though places like the Museum of Fine Arts Houston are nonprofit institutions and therefore, in a way, public institutions, there's not a public ownership, which could uh, almost explain some of the link between these actions of Just Stop Oil and the fact that they're trying to get through to the government. Like, if, if these institutions are almost, in a way, governmental institutions that are responding to the public, doing that could have a more of an impact than if someone walked into the MFA and superglued their hand to a Turner piece, right? I feel like I feel like the legislature of Texas wouldn't really take note of that, whereas maybe because of the public ownership, there's more of a one-to-one in in England around that. I don't know. This is a little bit of just kind of where a cultural difference around arts and funding, I think, may come into play. I want to respond to that with a couple general points, Brandon, like that many European institutions have a timeline, they have an age that goes far beyond uh, the age of some of our big institutions, like the MFAH. Um, I would almost argue that like, probably the vast majority of the museums founded in Texas probably overlap fairly neatly with the establishment and development of the oil infrastructure and economy in this state. Whereas I don't think that those two timelines um, would correlate as neatly for many a European institution. It's probably because they're older, it's probably things like shipping or the slave trade or, you know, it's a it's another kind of complicated history. This is kind of this is kind of the rule of thumb of philanthropy, uh, which is that the oil baron or the shipping baron or the tulip baron of the time is generally expected to shave off a piece of the pie and give it to the public. The era that you and I live in as modern day Texans, that historically has been oil. Um, And it's historically been that during the development of many museums in the state. Um, I would also like to just mention that not maybe not in every museum, like at like above their front desk, but at a lot of them, they will have a plaque that states um, the people that posted the capital funding to build the building, um, major donors. You can kind of see these things for yourself and just like do a quick Google and figure out like, okay, so it sounds like maybe there was this type of industrial boom whenever this uh, museum was built because that's those are the people that chipped in the money to put it up. I wonder if one of the reasons that it feels like in Texas oil is so ingrained into the culture, well, one of the reasons is because A, it is, but also B, because of the short history of these institutions, there hasn't been a full ability of them to diversify like maybe some of these european institutions have like if these european institutions were built on shipping or were built on the tulip merchant in the netherlands or you know oil has come on in the last hundred years to add to that uh but oil didn't establish it versus in texas 
Houston, Dallas, both of those cities especially, oil has always been this underlying current which has helped propel cultural culture forwards. Uh, but at the same time, just the institutions in Texas being as they were built on it, it's such a critical part of the infrastructure still that I don't know if there is a good way for Texas institutions to break away from it right now, even if they really wanted to, which I at least haven't seen any indication that any of them are itching to start this conversation, kind of understandably. <laughs> there is kind of a, a sureness like a really brazen indignance in the just stop oil images where they've spray painted um, not on the paintings, but near them, uh, their, their phrase, just stop oil. Um, It makes you think that they feel confident or at least they, I mean, obviously they believe in their cause, but that they feel confident that they can demand it. Um, it's almost a, like, war is over if you want it kind of a phrase that, like, there's consumer power in 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 the act of protest. Um, which leads me to the question, Brandon, that, like, I would agree with you that I don't know if that phrasing just printed below um, a painting at the MFAH would warrant the same, like, camaraderie from the public. Do you think the tone of the protest needs to match the local culture in order to be successful? That's a hard question because in some ways, if it goes viral, it doesn't matter if it matches the tone of local culture because your message is much bigger than that. Like these protests, we have no idea of knowing if this tone matches the local culture. There was a New York Times article that seemed to say that uh, some people who were in one of the galleries agreed and some people disagreed. And I think that's going to kind of always be the way it is. Um, I do think it's important to consider where you are and consider the politics of where you are. Um, One example that I've uh, touched on in some capacity before when liberate Tate came through Houston in 2016, Uh, They did a stop at the Art League Houston. It was sponsored by the Center for Art and Social Engagement, in part. Um, But they talked about their process of getting the Tate to divest from BP. And they talked about all of their performances or protests. They were almost performance protests. Um, And basically how they brought this to fruition. And it felt like, to me, they finished their talk all of the air was kind of sucked out of the room and people who were in the room watching their talk were just like, but how do we, how does this happen here in Houston? And I think they, the the Liberate Tate folks, I think they knew that Houston was largely impacted by oil. I mean, it would be hard not to, but I don't know if they knew how far the roots went in the community. Like, Asking Tate to divest from BP, I think BP averaged around a quarter million pounds a year um, in their contribution, and Tate's budget was 92 million. So a percentage of the budget. Not inconsequential, they would still have to make it up, but it's not half of the budget. Versus in Houston or in Dallas, where money not only comes from oil companies, but money also comes from trustees who are presidents and vice presidents of these oil companies and just the way that 
oil and energy permeates the Texas economy means that everything touches it in some capacity. Um, Of course, there's an argument in here of like, how clean do you want to be? It's like, do you not take the money from the petrochemical person who's developing plastics, but it's okay to take the oil money. But if you were to just completely chop out all of the oil money, I don't think many cultural institutions in Texas, even the big ones, would be able to survive for a year. Um, So the question to me is not necessarily, can we do this, but is how is it done so that it's not eliminating organizations' ability to survive? Because right now we can't do it. And I think it goes much deeper than protesting, again, this is Texas, it goes deeper than protesting the institutions accepting the money and it goes into actual actual politics and lobbying and showing the companies themselves what you're looking for. Um, and I believe it was an artist who used to be on the Tate's uh, board had a quote in one of the articles we were reading to prep for this. Um, and he said, I always thought that BP was playing a very clever game. They're almost subcontracting the activism and the controversy to these open-minded arts organizations so they don't have to deal with it. And that's an, it's an interesting thought that, you know, museum accepts money, museum gets backlash against the, or against the company because they accepted the money. The company isn't really seeing the backlash. If the company didn't donate that money, the company would might just have more money or they might have to pay more taxes or they would donate the money somewhere else. You know, there's, it's interesting that a lot of this focuses on the museum, whereas the real issue in theory that you're protesting is the oil company, right? William, is there a, is there a way around that dissidence or is that just kind of politics of doing business? All of that leads me to think that if total divestment of a supposedly toxic industry is not possible in the short term. I would almost think that the protest uh, strategy would be to demand as big of a piece of the pie as possible from them. Does that make sense? You know, if you can't shut down the oil refineries successfully because no one will let you, um, and even if you could, the city would come grinding to a halt, well then... That just makes me think that you should demand as much as much as you can get as possible and put your pressure, put your power on that pressure point. Um, because what what you're I mean, what we're both kind of talking about, Brandon, is like a museum that can will whatever the issue is. But if a museum can't sacrifice uh, a majority percentage of like their funding, well, they won't do that. Um they can't do that. So if you wanted to protest something, I would almost I would almost think that applying as much pressure as you can to make that pot larger is probably more strategic. I don't know. That's really interesting. I don't know if I've ever thought about that as one of the solutions, almost making it like a like a percentage for art or percentage for culture. Um, which it's very possible that big companies may have something like that built in again, if they're doing it for a tax break, right? If they make more money, they need to donate more money. Um, but it's like BP wants to open a a, a rig. Well, they need to donate another 
two million dollars to arts institutions in order to help offset that the argument about just divest and you can find the money elsewhere i feel like that's an argument that comes up a lot but i i i do have to say that i feel like if cultural organizations could find the money elsewhere they would already be utilizing that money right like like even if it's even if it's a small organization like hey small nonprofit you don't need the $10,000 from wherever that small nonprofit would then be like oh so who's going to give us the $10,000 like if we knew who to ask for the $10,000 we would already be getting the $10,000 <laughs> like I, I think all of this is deeply enmeshed in larger governmental and societal change before it just happens in the cultural sector. I actually think that Liberate Tate is a very specific example that worked and was able to happen in its own kind of odd ecosystem. Right. Like, I think if you, as a coalition, as a working group, as an art collective, if you can like identify a parcel of funding that like you can strategically pressure it to be placed elsewhere and that is like feasible um i think that sounds like a good use of everyone's time and like good on you for looking out and thinking towards the future but if there's like a structurally insurmountable obstacle to achieving your goal um like in this case we're talking about just how important oil is to the economy here, um, then some people are going to respond to your slogan of just stop oil with cynicism and being like, well, yeah, I mean, that's really easy for you to say, but you're not going to donate the millions of dollars that the museum that you want the museum to not have anymore from oil. So like, what do you, and I guess maybe that's, just one takeaway about like rhetoric and aesthetics um, that I would, I would like artists to audiences in general to take note, which is that, you know, talk is cheap. You can, you can tell anyone anything. Um, Thanks first amendment. But um, you know, if you're pointing at a problem that you're like, this needs to be fixed and someone else needs to fix it it's hard to garner sympathy that way. And it's also like, I mean, you haven't really established an argument. You've kind of just established an argument, but the buck is still being passed down. Um, Does that, does that make sense? Does that approach this topic appropriately? Yeah, I I think that makes sense. And that's uh, not to get, too arty about it, but I feel like that's one of the the really hard aspects of social practice art, which is where a lot of the, uh, n- nothing that we've talked about, I guess liber- Liberate Tate kind of could be categorized as social practice art, but I think they very much saw themselves as like a protest movement. It wasn't like made to be for a, a space, but I think that's one of the challenges of social practice art. It's like, what is the ethical limit between pointing the finger and noting that a problem exists versus how much you can actually do to help make the change. Because I'm almost a little bit of the belief that a lot of the actual long-lasting physical change happens in things that aren't necessarily specifically social practice. Like, it could come out of social practice projects, but a lot of the active change is, like, doing 
work in the community, which there, that's a it's a blurry line because that's some of what social practice is, but it's like political organizing and political movement. And it's a, a, a lot of the real change that I've seen happen has been outside of the I'm making this as an art project context. I would generally agree with that. Um, I know some activists, full-time activists at that in the Dallas area and in certain sectors that are less visually stunning or um, maybe a little more boring than museums or art and watching those people set their goals, organize around them for months, if not years, and then sometimes achieve their goals with spectacular success. The intersection of social art and protest, which is to say putting public pressure generally on a governmental faction or organization, um, the place where those intersect is surely like optical. It's like what the public sees or experiences from that demonstration. But at the same time, um, I would venture to guess if you ask your average activist who's uh, set a schedule and completed and accomplished at least some of it, it's going to look a lot less sexy than that. Um, and it certainly it certainly won't come down to like a weekend demonstration. So what I'm thinking is that Just Stop Oil, they, uh, like, for example, they uh, protested at oil terminals, but that didn't get, that didn't get near as much press as the art, you know, doing it in an art institution or gluing their hands to paintings. But all I can think of is they're getting all this press around it and because of what they did. And what I can think of is politicians who are against what, this group represents are just saying, thank God they didn't come super glue their hand to my desk or BP saying, thank God they didn't super glue their hand to the front door of our headquarters. Or it's like the, there has to be a point where you find a messaging that can get your word out and also is in the face of the power brokers. So they have to pay attention. And I don't know if this is that for the just stop oil people. By comparison, I felt like doing something that is mildly destructive to something that is extremely valuable, (laughs) like gluing your hand to the frame of The Last Supper, I, for whatever reason, found that to be kind of innovative, pretty interesting, um, accessible, sort of proletarian almost. Um, I appreciated it in its simplicity. Um, but, but I see your point, Brandon, and I, I, I respect that as well. Be honest, Brandon, when you first saw these images coming out of the European galleries, did you think this was a protest to stop new oil paintings? (sighs) You know, there is a mixed messaging in there. I could see it read that way. There's also, to me, an irony of using a super glue to glue your hand to something and then using like spray paint, maybe it's spray chalk, who knows, but using spray paint to paint say no to oil or whatever it said on the walls of these institutions. If 
I don't have anything that backs me up that's saying these are oil-based or plastics-based products, but there is an inherent irony in there if they are. Um, of course, it also it's an inherent irony, but it also taps into the idea that none of us can live our lives without being affected by these things or without using these things in some way, shape, or form. There's no way to accurately do that, which is maybe part of the problem, and maybe it emphasizes their point. Who knows? Um, that's for you to decide. But... Yeah, there's the, the mixed messaging or say just stop oil, say no to oil. Maybe it's just a protest against bad painting. It would be great if these were all conservationist PhD students and they used highly non, uh, non-toxic non materials while doing their demonstration. <laughs> and with that, thank you for joining us today. Uh, if you want to know any more about our conversation or what we were reading in preparation for it, we'll include that reading list on Glass Tire. It's a good one. There's a lot of uh, good New York Times pieces, actually, that sum up what's been happening uh, pretty well. So with that, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. And until then, we recommend you stay cool. It's Texas summer, and you go see some art. Go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2022.